Today on the Matt Wall Show, confirming our long-standing suspicion, Superman has come out as gay. Yet another iconic character has been inducted into the LGBT community. We're told that this is all about creating greater representation for supposedly marginalized groups. But I think there's something else going on, and I'll explain. Also, parents at Loudoun County call for the superintendent to resign after the school district covered up the rape of a girl in a school bathroom. We'll talk more about that very important story today. And the Chicago Police Department is having trouble recruiting new cops. Big crisis in the city. I wonder why that's happening. Plus, Lego commits itself to combating gender stereotypes, which is a very important thing. We'll talk about that and much more today on The Matt Walsh Show. In our culture's never-ending quest to turn literally everything gay, it was only a matter of time before it set its eyes on Superman As the many celebratory news articles inform us, DC comic writer Tom Taylor has just written and will soon release a new Superman comic wherein the iconic superhero will find himself in a gay relationship with a male pink-haired journalist. And this is actually, if you look at it one way, a pretty conservative move by DC. I figured that by now we would have a Superman who's non-binary, rename him Super-Them. But instead of super they, we'll have to settle for super gay, I suppose. CNN has uh, more on this breaking story. It says, quote, In an upcoming issue of a new Superman series, the Man of Steel enters into a queer relationship. The fifth issue of the DC Comics series Superman Son of Kal-El will confirm that the new Superman, John Kent, child of Clark Kent and Lane, is bisexual after falling for Jay Nakamura, a male reporter. The Superman Son of Kal-El series follows Kent as he becomes Earth's new Superman and grapples with the immense weight of his new gig. Nakamura, a bespectacled writer with a bubblegum pink mop, first appeared in the series' third issue as a shoulder for Kent to lean on when the business of being Superman got too rough. But in the forthcoming fifth issue, Kent falls for the journalist after he, quote, mentally and physically burns out from trying to save everyone that he can, according to DC. The particulars of this issue's plot are to be revealed in November, but images from the comic show, uh, Kent and Nakamura sharing a kiss and sitting together atop a building, their legs dangling off the edge. So Superman also has anxiety issues on top of it. And this move comes just months after Robin over in uh, Gotham City came out as gay as well. Not a huge shock there, admittedly. The DC Universe also features a lesbian Batwoman and uh, various other members of the LGBT community who have been shoehorned into various comic storylines. Pretty soon, you know, the Justice League will be the Alphabet League, I guess. And of course, the the superheroes of this new generation, they don't just show off their woke credentials through their homosexual encounters. They also are focused on fighting a different kind of villain. So here's Tom Taylor, the guy who came up with Gay Superman. On CNN, talking about the sorts of issues that Superman will be involved in now. Listen. And it struck me as it would be a real opportunity lost if we had another, we had Clark Kent replaced by another straight white savior. So here was an opportunity to create a Superman who could represent a whole new group of people. And I think that was one that we had to leave on. And we'll be addressing modern day issues like like the climate crisis like refugees um john in the last issue has just been arrested attending a protest trying to stop the refoulement of asylum seekers um he does 45 minutes of hard time is how he puts it uh but as a as a stand it's a very powerful thing and yes so this is one of the things for him he is trying to work out who he is who he is as Superman, who he is as John Kent. And so us as the writer and everybody at DC Comics is watching him go through this process of finding himself and seeing that on the page. Okay, so this is a gay environmentalist Superman. I think the creators of Captain Planet should really sue for plagiarism, if you ask me. I I do wonder how Superman will fight climate change exactly. Will he, like, beat up the sun, maybe engage in hand-to-hand combat with the weather? drop kick a cloud. I mean, how does that work exactly? And the thing is, that would be exciting to watch if a little bit confusing, I suppose. But it sounds like Tom Taylor has more earthbound ideas in mind, like having Superman attend political demonstrations. You know, kids can now flip excitedly through the pages of their favorite comic book, watching Superman um, hold signs and uh, shout slogans, and then go home and start a hashtag campaign to raise awareness. 
his kryptonite is a frowny face emoji. In the, in the, in the final climactic battle, he defeats Lex Luthor by uh, reporting him to Twitter for hate speech. I guess that's the way it's going to go. Now, you know, it's, it's easy to make fun of this kind of thing, and we should make fun of it. But we shouldn't let the fantastic absurdity distract us from the underlying agenda, which is more sinister than anything gay Superman will be fighting against in the new comics. We, we, we can all look around and clearly see that gay and trans characters and storylines are being injected into everything from comics to movies to TV shows. Even the most iconic and enduring characters are forced to undergo this kind of conversion therapy. And we know that the conversion is only ever allowed to go one way, right? White straight characters can be made non-white or non-straight, but if non-white, non-straight characters are made white or straight, it's a hate crime. And everybody responsible must be fired and then dragged into the town square and stoned to death. That's the way it works now. But we're told this is this is all a matter of representation, right? The left says that um, all these uh, identities must be rammed into every story because audience members who share that identity deserve to be represented. Tom Taylor made this claim in that same CNN interview. Let's listen to that. I promise he will punch a robot. That's just a guaranteed. He will come up against Lex Luthor in our upcoming annual. Um, all those things are part and parcel of Superman, and this is just something extra that that very important symbol can now represent. And I have to say, having seen the reaction today, having seen online what it's meant to people, I've, I've seen so many messages from all over the world in so many different languages, people saying that they saw this news and burst into tears. People saying that they never thought that they would be able to see themselves mm. in Superman, that they wish other people who, older people, older queer people have said they wish they had this growing up and they're so happy that younger people or people who haven't come out yet have this today. That, that, by the way, keep, keep this in mind, this kind of thing in mind, um, because the other thing that we, we, we hear from the left, and I'll, I'll probably get this too because I'm doing this segment right now when uh, some of this inevitably ends up on media matters. But there goes, oh, it's, it's oh, the conservative media making a big deal about uh, bisexual Superman. Isn't that so ridiculous? Why do you care so much? Right? They, they, they do that whole thing. Meanwhile, CNN is doing a news segment on it, bringing the creator of Gay Superman on to, to come on and talk about how people are, are reduced to tears of joy over the fact that there's a bisexual Superman. So they can make a big deal. They make a big deal about it on the left and tell us that it's a big deal. I mean, we're, it's breaking news. We're talking about it on CNN. People are crying tears of joy. They're overcome with, uh, with uh, you know, feelings of, of ecstatic um, emotions because of it. That's how big of a deal it is. But if you say, all right, um, fine, it's a big deal. I agree. It's, 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 it's socially, culturally relevant, but I have an issue with it. I have a criticism and here it is. The moment you do that, then they say, well, what are you making a big deal of it for? Well, I, you're the one who told us it's a big deal. We're taking you at your word on that. Now, if this was all true, that this is really about representation, it would only be more evidence of the increasing narcissism of our age. I mean, the whole idea that we, we must be represented in a story in order, in order to connect with it or understand it is fundamentally self-centered. Part of the beauty of storytelling, what we love about a good story or should love about it, is that we can become absorbed in it and forget about ourselves to some extent. That's what people mean when they talk about escapist entertainment. And all entertainment is or should be escapist to some degree. We all live every day absorbed in our own stories. That's what we spend most of our time thinking about is our own stories. But when you're reading a book or watching a film, etc., the beauty is that you're becoming invested in somebody else's story, not your own. The demand that uh, you must see yourself reflected in it, that everything must be a mirror showing you back to yourself, ultimately defeats the purpose and only fuels more of the narcissism that causes this problem to begin with. It's true that we should be able to relate to the characters and stories, but we should be able to relate to them because of what the characters say about the universal human condition. I mean, when I read Dostoevsky, for example, I don't feel represented by the characters in the way that people mean representation these days because the characters are all a bunch of 19th century Russians. But I do feel represented only in the sense 
that they're dealing with moral dilemmas and searching for deeper truths just as I do and we all do. I mean, I can relate to that because I'm a human being. That's the kind of representation that matters, but it's not the sort of representation that we always hear about. And anyway, this is all irrelevant because it's not what's going on here. They aren't turning all the characters gay in an effort to represent gay people. The percentage of gay and trans characters on TV and in comics now far exceeds the percentage in the general population. If this was truly a matter of representation, they'd have stopped by now. I mean, we'd say, okay, well, we've, we've got proper representation here. It's a small minority of the general population. Should be a real small minority on the screen if it's just about representation. But it's not. Because the point behind adding the gay characters, and especially making a character like Superman gay, is not to merely represent an identity, but to present an ideal. Okay, they're saying to the audience, especially to children in the audience, and the comic book audience is still mostly kids, um, although there are far too many adults that are in the audience as well. But what they're saying to the audience is, this is the ideal way to be. They want to erase straight white male characters because the people doing the erasing despise straight white male people. That's the point. I mean, you heard it there from the guy who created the character. Oh, we don't want another straight white male saying it with, with, uh, with disgust. So they wish to create a society. You know, they don't want all the straight white male people in society. They want to create a society filled with different sorts of people. And the so-called representation is one way of pushing that agenda. And we know that also because it always comes with, it's not as though, okay, you've made Superman gay, and but then he continues along just being Superman, doing Superman things. And the gayness and the, the, his, his, uh, his sexual attraction is just, you know, it's a, it's a minor detail. But other than that, I mean, he's fighting Lex Luthor. He's doing all this. That's not what they do. It comes in a package where, okay, now he's focused on refugees and he's focused on fighting climate change. And of all the villains turn into straight white male conservatives. You know, whereas that used to be the hero, now it's the villain. So it all comes in one package. And that's the point in all of these stories, whether they're doing it in comic books, or they're doing it in Hollywood, on TV and media, it's about presenting an ideal to the audience. This is how you should be. Even if you can't fly around like Superman, this is the ideal way to be. And that's the point. Even if, of course, they'll never, ever be honest about it. Now let's get to our five headlines. You know, as an increasing number of companies fall all over themselves trying to appeal to the left, wouldn't it be nice to find at least one that supports your values? Well, I'll give you one. Charity Mobile is the pro-life phone company. They partner with you to automatically support the pro-life, pro-family charity of your choice with 5% of your monthly plan price and have sent millions of dollars to charities so far. New activations and eligible accounts get a free cell phone with free activation and free shipping when you mention offer code Walsh. Certain restrictions apply there. Charity Mobile makes it easy to switch. You can keep your existing phone number. You may even be able to keep your existing phone as well. But if you need a new phone, no problem there. Charity, Charity Mobile has a variety of options from basic flip phones and low-cost smartphones to the latest 5G phones. They've got it all. And they've got monthly plan prices that uh, have were already low. They've been lowered again. And now you can add even more lines to your family plan. And you're doing all of this while also supporting a pro-life company and helping to build a culture of life in America. So switch to Charity Mobile and support the causes you care about. Call them at 1-877-474-3662 or chat with them online at charitymobile.com and mention offer code Walsh. Okay, so uh, great night at the Ryman yesterday, by the way. We did our backstage live at the Ryman, which was uh, pretty surreal in a lot of ways. Huge crowd there. I think we were at capacity. I think it was 2,800 people or something like that. And uh, Sweet Baby Gang, I got to tell you, Sweet Baby Gang was there in force. Uh, people showing up in the T-shirts. They were also selling the T-shirts for $57 uh, as well. And people were buying them. It wasn't quite that much, but it was still a lot of money. People were buying the T-shirts. And uh, Sweet Baby Gang was there. And I, and I, do, you know, I feel a certain 
I, honestly, I'm racked with guilt today because uh, I, I feel as though I did fail the Sweet Baby Gang because I never gave a shout out explicitly to the Sweet Baby Gang from the stage at the Ryman. And I wanted to. I was waiting for my opening. And it, I never found the segue. And, right, and I realized as we were kind of wrapping up, and uh, Jeremy was wrapping things up that it, the segue wasn't going to come. And I thought, now's my opportunity. I got I to gotta jump in right here at the end. I got to ruin the ending. And I, but, I, but I didn't. At the last minute, I decided not to. So I, you know, I take responsibility for that. I do. But still, I know the Sweet Baby Gang was there. I could feel, I could feel the, the force and the energy. Um, and so, you know, it was a lot of fun. And, and then we had... Um, you know, before before the the event, we had our VIP meet and greet, which was kind of a receiving line. And I think there was 350 people in line. And, you know, we all took pictures with, with each person, 350 people in a row. Uh, and I, you know, I have to say, I know I talk about how, you know, I'm an, I'm an introvert. So I don't necessarily enjoy those kinds of... I... I, I I don't mind being, I prefer to be on stage. I, I don't necessarily enjoy those kinds of interactions as much. I mean, I've, I've admitted that. But uh, I thought I was being pretty jovial by my standards. You know, I was making, I had the small talk down with each person. It's like 350 people in a row. And so I had the, the brief little small talk exchanges down. We were talking about the weather. Oh, it's hot out there for October. What is this, July? Am I right? <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. And, uh, but people kept coming up to me even still and saying, like each person that came up would console me saying, oh, this is, this will be over soon. Don't worry about it. They were consoling me because I was being forced to meet them. That's what I, I thought. Am I really giving off those vibes? I thought, I'm, I thought I'm doing pretty well here. Uh, but that's just, that's, I, I guess I can't, I can't overcome that. Those, those are, that's just me. That's just my, that's my aura. Um, and then we had, uh, and then it was also really good. Starting off the event, we had the booming Let's Go Brandon chant from the entire audience, um, which I, I got to say, the, we haven't talked about the Let's Go Brandon thing very much on this show. Uh, I think it's a great innovation. I think it's hilarious. It's one of the most clever things, I think, that conservatives have come up with. It's a, it's a small thing, but it's very clever because of what, because of what it allows you to do. Because, of course, we all know what we're really saying with Let's Go Brandon. And I want to say one other, one other thing about that, about the Let's Go Brandon thing. Because you hear criticisms of this, uh, even from some conservatives, who say, well, you know, I'm not a big fan of Let's Go Brandon or of the more vulgar version of the same thing. Uh, you know, we, we, we shouldn't be doing that. Even if, we are, even if we're critics of Joe Biden, we shouldn't be doing that because we should have more respect for the office. And so at backstage last night when the entire audience is, is chanting, let's go, Brandon, we are showing a lack of respect for the office of the presidency. That's the criticism anyway. And uh, I don't find that criticism com compelling at all. I got to tell you. And I'll tell you why. Because I don't think it's our job as citizens to show respect for the office of the presidency. I'm not even sure exactly what that would mean. I mean, what do you mean with show respect for the office? It's, it's, he's the president. This is not royalty. These are supposed to be public servants. They're politicians. So what exact reverence do you want for the office itself? I think when it, when it comes to showing respect for the office of the presidency, that responsibility falls to the person holding that office. They're the ones who are supposed to show respect for it. And if, and if the president, the person holding the office, shows respect for the office themselves, then I will show respect for them. Okay, you have to earn. If you're a politician, you have to earn the respect of the population. You have to earn the respect of the citizens. We're not going to grant it to you. Just by nature of the fact that you hold the office. Joe Biden has shown no respect for his own office. So why should we respect it? When he abuses the powers of his office. When he stands up there and admits and says, I don't have the authority to do this thing that I'm about to do. And then he does it. 
Well, that is showing a total lack of respect for the office, what the office is supposed to be, for the actual responsibilities of that office, for the limits of the power that that office grants you. So he has desecrated it, if it is a thing that can be desecrated to begin with. He shows no respect for it. Um, And so I have no respect for him. I think in in uh, in America, you know, our real response when it comes to corrupt politicians, we should treat them with no respect at all. I think if anything, there's there's still too much respect for corrupt and incompetent politicians. We should have zero respect for them. Every single day, we should get up and say to these so-called public servants who are supposed to be serving us. I mean, that's, in theory, that's what it's supposed to be, right? We're supposed to be the bosses. So we should get up every day and say to them, okay, you, you earn it now. You, you want my respect? Earn it. Uh, all right. So speaking of people who have not earned uh, any respect in the office that they hold, here's this from Fox News. It says, more than 60 concerned parents, students, and residents spoke at the Loudoun County School Board meeting Tuesday evening, with many demanding the resignation of Loudoun County Superintendent Scott Ziegler in the wake of allegations that the school district covered up two alleged sexual assaults. Parents attended the school board meeting with signs urging Ziegler to resign. Uh, Parents pointed to two alleged sexual assaults, the first of which the victim's father claims took place on May 28th. Uh, This is from the Daily Wire report, which we we talked about yesterday. We talked about it on the backstage show as well. Um, The father says his ninth grade daughter was assaulted in the bathroom by a boy wearing a skirt. Elizabeth Lancaster, the attorney for the father of the alleged victim, said the boy was charged with two counts of forcible sodomy, one count of anal sodomy, and one count of forcible fellatio. The sheriff's office says, um, told Fox News, we can confirm a May 28, 2021 case that involved a thorough two-month-long investigation that was conducted to determine the facts of the case prior to the arrest. This case is still pending court proceedings. The Loudoun County Sheriff's Office is not able to provide any documents that pertain to a pending case. Um, At a June 22nd board meeting, Ziegler declared, quote, that the predator transgender student or person simply does not exist, and that to his knowledge, quote, we don't have any record of assaults occurring in our restrooms. So that's what he said on June 22nd. He said there's no record of any assaults occurring in in restrooms. Meanwhile, on May 28th, there was this alleged assault that was already making its way through the legal system, that that police had been made aware of. Are are we supposed to believe that Ziegler, the superintendent, I mean, a a girl was allegedly violently, brutally raped in a bathroom during school hours, and we're supposed to believe that Ziegler didn't know about it? Well, that's impossible to believe. It's just, it's impossible to believe. So we can look at this. I don't think we have to say it's an alleged cover-up by the school board. It's a cover-up. This horrible thing happened, allegedly, and you denied that it happened at all. That's what a cover-up is. And we could say that even without all the other details that we get from the father about how when he went to the school after this happened, when they called him to come in, and and they told him they want to keep it in-house. Even without that, You've got clear indication, proof of a cover-up. And the superintendent denies that it happened. When he had to know about it. So, school board meeting was yesterday. And uh, let's play, this is from Fox, some of the clips here of uh, the parents trying to hold the school board accountable for this, um, for this cover-up. Let's listen. The 8040 policy was rushed through to a vote without consideration for the safety of all students simply to satisfy a political agenda. Your moral compasses are busted. You, Dr. Ziegler, and our school board, every one of you, are complicit in these crimes against our children because you did nothing about it. What is worse than a child being raped at school? The cover-up by those who are entrusted with the safety and well-being of children. Warned you about policies that you were putting into place that would be a danger to our students? And we've seen that happen. When is enough is enough? 
When are you going to change the policies to keep our children safe? This is not China. This is the United States of America, and we will not be silenced. You are liable for these injustices. Remove the superintendent immediately, and then resign for your negligence and duplicity. End this nightmare. I am 14 years old. The fact that I have to be here to fight for my rights to not have your radical agenda shoved down my throat in school is not only concerning, it's upsetting. Uh, the, and that, the last one there, it's, it's hard to hear, uh, exactly what's being said and that's all by design. I mean, that's why they have to wear the masks. The, the masks function in, in this case as literal muzzles. That's why you have to, that's why they re- require them to put them on. I mean, there, there's, there's no other audience in the room. They're standing, they're given 60 seconds to address the school board with nobody within 15 feet of them. They can't take the mask off. They can't take it off for 60 seconds so that they can speak and be understood. No, they can't take it off because they want the words to be muffled. These despicable, gutless, scumbag cowards will do everything they possibly can to avoid any kind of accountability whatsoever. Uh, but these Loudoun County parents, they, they continue to put on a, a clinic for that other parents are, across the country should, should really follow. There's a, there's a model here that's being presented. And I obviously saw it for myself uh, when I became a resident of Loudoun County and when I, when I was there. But they've got it organized. They know exactly what they're doing. And now, because they're only given 60 seconds to speak out about the cover-up of a violent rape of a girl in a bathroom during school hours. They're only given 60 seconds to talk about it. What it means is that, um, you know, at, you, then you, you just need, you need 30, 40 parents in a row hitting on this same topic because they only get 60 seconds. And if you all, if you all stay on the, on the same topic and you stay on message, then cumulatively you've, you've spoken about it for 40 minutes, 50 minutes. And that's exactly what they're doing. And I hope they continue to do it. Every single school board meeting, every person that goes up there should be specifically calling for Scott Ziegler. I forget if Scott is his first name. Anyway, uh, for, for yeah, Scott Ziegler to step down because of this issue until he does. All right, let's move next to uh, Janet Yellen, Treasury Secretary. We have discussed the uh, proposal by the Treasury Department, by the the Biden administration, to monitor all bank accounts with transactions that uh, are $600 or more. So if you, you know, $600 enters your, your checking account or leaves your checking account at any point over the course of a year, then the IRS wants to know about it and they want to have direct access to your account so they can monitor all of that, um, all of that information, and all of that data. Now, Janet Yellen on CBS being asked about this again, and she says, "No, no, 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 no. This is this is not an invasion of privacy. And if you're just a normal middle class person, this this isn't even about you. Uh, this is really about high income people and billionaires." Here she is explaining it. You want banks to report transactions of $600 or more. That's what the IRS wants. Does this mean that the government is trying to peek into our pocketbooks if you want to look at $600 transactions? Absolutely not. I think this proposal has been seriously mischaracterized. Um, The proposal involves no reporting of individual transactions of any individual. Look, the big picture is that we have a tax gap that over the next decade is estimated at $7 trillion, namely a shortfall in the amount that IRS is collecting due to a failure of individuals to report the income that they've earned. But that's among billionaires. Is that among people who are transferring $600? No, it tends to be among high-income individuals whose income is opaque 
and the IRS doesn't receive information about it. If you earn a paycheck, you get a W-2, the IRS knows about it. But high-income individuals with opaque sources of income that are not reported to the IRS, there's a lot of tax fraud and cheating that's going on. And all that's involved in this proposal is a few aggregate numbers about bank accounts, the amount that was received in the course of a year, the amount that went out in the course of the year. So am I showing, um, am, am I failing to show respect for the office of the Treasury Secretary if I say that, you know, Janet Yellen is a lying, obfuscating clown? I don't, I don't know if that's another office that I'm supposed to respect. The Treasury Secretary she certainly doesn't have any respect for us. And I, I, I don't just mean that she does, has no respect for our rights or our privacy. Obviously, she doesn't. Um, she has no respect for our intelligence. She, she thinks that we're all a bunch of, you know, sub-75 IQ morons that we would buy what she just said there. So the target, allegedly, is high-income earners and even billionaires and so their their way of uh, of of smoking out those you know those high income earners with obscure opaque uh, sources of income is to monitor all transactions over six hundred bucks. You want to find the billionaires who are cheating on their taxes, and so you're looking at checking accounts with six hundred dollars in them. Wouldn't it be transactions over I don't know. Rather than six hundred dollars, sixty thousand dollars, or at least six thousand dollars, or something exponentially greater than six hundred. So you're looking for a very specific, small sliver of um, of people here. You're, you're you're fishing for a very particular, allegedly a very particular kind of fish, and your way of doing that is to cast this massive net that'll catch dozens of species of fish that you aren't even looking for. It, that's, it, it's almost believable in a certain way because it's so boneheaded and inefficient and wasteful that, yeah, it's exactly what you expect from the government. They, they, they're, they're looking for billionaires, and so they start with people who spends $600 in a month. Uh, it's, such a, it's such a dumb claim that you, you, you could almost believe that they would be this stupid. But um, no, I, I don't think it's, it's, it's their own stupidity. I think it's their assumption about our stupidity, that we would believe that. No, this, as I said, is about, what this is really about is putting everybody under a permanent financial, you know, uh, under a permanent IRS audit. They are auditing almost all Americans. I don't know what percentage. If I were, that'd be an interesting thing. I wish they could tell us that. What percentage of Americans have transactions in a given month totaling at least over six hundred dollars? You know, I got to think it's a pretty sizable majority. So a sizable majority of Americans are having their economic freedom and privacy erased. And we're all being put under a permanent audit so that they don't have to go through the trouble of having individual specific audits of the actual people that they are trying to find. The tax, ta the billionaire tax cheats and so on. All right, next, this is from the Daily Wire. It says the Chicago Police Department is engaged in a nationwide campaign to recruit police officers but the city is still suffering from an officer shortage. With officers retiring and transferring to smaller departments, Chicago appears to be down nearly 1,600 officers. The city's CBS affiliate reported on Tuesday that Chicago police officers aren't only retiring in record numbers. Many are leaving the big city departments for smaller ones. It's contributing to an officer shortage that many city leaders believe will only get worse before it gets better. Um, officers who spoke to CBS Chicago noted that the problems go beyond simple burnout. Though that's a contributing factor to many officers' decision to leave the department, officers cited long working hours, mandatory overtime, and low pay as reasons they departed Chicago for other cities or decided to simply leave the force entirely. 
I honestly, if you value your your life and the lives of your children and your family, I don't know how you remain living in a place like Chicago. And I understand that it's a lot easier said than done. And as someone who doesn't live in Chicago myself, and I don't depend, I I don't have a job that requires me to be there. I, I understand that. I also understand that moving is difficult. Since I've been married, we've moved like six times. But the point is, it can be done. I just don't understand how anyone who has any other options stays there in Chicago or in cities like it. They're running out of cops. And meanwhile, they've decriminalized gang shootings in that city. It was just last week that they... They decided not to file any charges against gang members who shot and killed each other in the middle of the street. It's it's not going to get better. You've seen this precipitous decline, and uh, you, you'll you'll notice it. it, it there, there's there has not been an uptick. It, it hasn't been. We haven't seen any evidence that the trends are going to start heading in a positive direction, and they won't, because all of this stuff has a snowball effect. Um, and here's, here's the problem. And you, know, you, you find this in Chicago and it's not just in Chicago where they're having trouble attracting police officers, recruiting and hiring police officers. They're, they're having trouble keeping cops, um, on the job, even the ones that have already been hired. It, it's, it's, that's obviously no mystery. I mean, it's, it has been turned into an almost impossible job to be a police officer. And cops now know, and this this again is the case, not just in Chicago, but across the entire country. You you go out and you do your job on a daily basis. It's bad enough knowing that the media is completely against you. Much of the community that you're risking your life to protect, they also hate your guts. And you know that the moment you're trying to arrest someone for committing a crime, the moment they start resisting, um, the moment they turn violent, the moment they grab a gun and start shooting at you, it's a lose-lose situation. And the more violent they are towards you, the more of a lose-lose situation it is. Because you could not respond with uh, equal force and end up getting killed. Or you can respond with equal force and neutralize the dangerous threat. And then you know that the media and uh, the community that you were just protecting and serving there will immediately set to work to destroy your life because of it. So that's what you know as a cop. The moment the bad guy pulls out a knife or a gun, in that moment you know, okay, um, good chance here, I'm either dead at the end of this or in prison, no matter how it goes. What what a mystery that people aren't very eager to sign up for something like that. And here's what here's what ends up happening. I mean, you've obviously got lots of cops that, that leave. What about the cops that stay on the job, um, or the ones who actually still sign up for this job? despite this this kind of environment, this kind of atmosphere. What kind of people are you going to attract now? Well, the only people that right now that I could see that would sign up to be a cop, I think there's probably like two types of people. One would be um, people who have a, a deep sense of duty and are extremely courageous and they feel called to this and they're going to do it anyway knowing what a lose-lose it might be for them, knowing they're putting their life on the line in more ways than one because their physical lives could be taken from them or everything but their physical lives could be taken from them if they have to you know, use force against a violent suspect and then their lives are destroyed. You know, knowing all of that, they still sign up for it. I think there are going to be people who do it because, because they, just, they, they feel duty-bound. And these are courageous, self-sacrificing people. But that's not going to be everybody. Um, you're also going to have people who sign up for it because 
They're just desperate for a job. I suppose you're gonna have some people like that. Um, but a, a lot of the people who are in between, who, who maybe are not heroes, but aren't villains either, just kind of like normal people who in, in previous years may have become police officers, they're going to have no interest. We've scared all of them away. And as I said, it's not going to get any better from here. Uh, finally, this is from the Daily Wire. It says, Lego Group is committed to uh, removing gender bias and harmful stereotypes from its toys, the company announced in a statement on Monday. Lego cited a study by the Gina Davis Institute on Gender in Media, a nonprofit pushing for gender balance in entertainment and media, showing that the majority of children believe that some activities are just meant for girls while others are meant for boys. Lego is calling on parents and children to champion inclusive play to change the perception of children, according to the toy company. Uh, and this is happening at the same time that the California governor, Gavin Newsom, uh, signed a law mandating in, in the entire state of California that large retail stores have to offer toys in gender neutral sections. So if they if they employ 500 or more employees across California, um, it is now a matter of law that they have to have a gender neutral section for toys, which, of course, that doesn't achieve anything but just make it harder for parents who are shopping, you know, trying to find toys for their for their kids. Because all parents realize this, like the vast majority of kids, it's not because we tell boys, oh, here are the, here are the toys for boys. You have to play with those. Oh, you're a girl where you're, you're, you're only allowed to have pink things and you have to play with dolls. We don't tell our kids that. It's just that that's most of the time what they naturally gravitate to from a very young age. And it's, it's always been an interesting thing for me to have you know, I've kind of had this, uh, been able to see this 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 play out in my own life, having a boy, you know, having fraternal twins, boy and a girl, and raising them. You know, they they were the first kids that we had, and uh, we raised them the same way. And we had, you know, we have a even from a from a young age, we had a, a playroom and with all the toys laid out. And we we never said to our daughter, "Well, here's the girl section of toys, here's the boy section." And you got to stay over here. We never said that. We just, here's the toys. Go play. Get out of mom and dad's hair for a second and go play with the toys. And what would they do? Almost every time, daughter's going for the dolls. The son's going for the action figures. Because it turns out that there is something innate within. You know, there's something about girls from a young age where they have this kind of maternal instinct. And that's why they like to play with the dolls. And they'll sit there and brush the doll's hair. And they'll, they have fun changing the doll's diapers. Boys, for the, for the most part, don't do that. There's something innate and ingrained. Pa- most parents recognize this. Some parents recognize it to their horror because they wish, they, you know, they don't want their kid to subscribe to these, gen- these awful gender stereotypes. And yet they do. And so you get rid of the gender segregation of the, of the toy department. All you're doing is just making it hard for the parents because, they, because they're, they're still looking for the same kinds of toys. I think it was Target did this a while ago where they made a big deal about, oh, we're not going to separate toys by boy versus girl anymore. But if you go to Target still and you go to the toy section, they've still done that. I mean, they've got all of the girl-type toys here in this aisle and all the boy-type toys here. They just don't have the word boy and girl on it. And almost every parent who has a daughter, they're going to the girl section. Because this stuff is, much of it is innate. It is not determined by society, despite what we're told. All right, let's get now to reading the comments. Who's rocking polka dot and flannel shirts without shame? Do you know their name? They're the sweet baby gang. Tiffany says, Matt quoting the Princess Bride earned himself the spot of best YouTuber in my book. Well, it sounds like you got pretty low standards, but I'll take it. And um, yeah, I'm an unapologetic fan of uh, the Princess Bride. I, I, I think it's it's... You can't call it one of the greatest films ever made, certainly, but it's one of the most rewatchable movies, I think, 
ever made. It's one of those movies that anytime it's on TV, you can just sit down and watch it and enjoy it. Um, and all right, what else we got here? Uh, Mr. Walsh, of all the different names of Christ, do you have a personal favorite? Also, what's the most important thing you've learned since you started your show and have seen it grow like it has? Uh, personal favorite name of Christ? Well, I think Christ is, that's a good one. I'm, I'm happy with that. Our Lord, I, I suppose, is also. I hadn't really thought about what my favorite name is. As far as what I've, I've learned since starting the show, I'm, I'm not sure if, uh, if this is something I've learned, but I've just seen it. I've seen it demonstrated over and over again, and that is that um, people are desperate for basic common sense, and uh, that's a bad sign for society, that common sense is so rare, but it has made it possible. I mean, it's, it's, it's given me a career, you know, because there's, there's so much insanity out there. All you have to do is speak basic truths. You don't have to have any deeper, brilliant insights. And that's good because I don't have any. All I could just do, I, mean, I could sit here and say, uh, you know, all, uh, women have uteruses. And even a, tr- a truth like that, people are hungry and desperate for it. So I guess that's, I suppose, what I learned. Scott says, Ben used your office today, but the alien playing the banjo and the little astronaut on your desk weren't visible on the camera. Um, I'm afraid he stole them. You know, they do that sometimes. They come in here, they kick me out of my own studio. I mean, Ben comes in here like he owns the place or something, tells me to leave. And uh, every time that happens, no matter who's using the studio, they, they always take the alien and the banjo away. It's like, fine, you can use my studio if you want. But you, you, this, is, this is my studio. Don't, don't, and there's nothing to be ashamed of with the, the alien and the banjo. I do take offense to that. Uh, Tom says, hey, Matt, you silly person. People sleep. Uh, people sleep. You're counting that as free time. I wake two hours before work. One hour is just to get there. When you add that in, my workday is 11 hours, so I only have five hours of free time. Okay, so you have five hours of free time, and you get eight hours of sleep a night. And then you have your weekends off. That's, that's amazing. That, that's a great life. I mean, that, that's, that's, a more, that's the point I was making yesterday. That, that is already a more luxurious and comfortable life. You are leading already a more luxurious and comfortable life than the vast majority of people who have ever lived on Earth. So, so have some gratitude for that. Now, a word from Helix Sleep. A lot of people these days seem to struggle um, with sleeplessness. It seems to be an increasing problem. I know, you know, it, it is for me, especially last night. I think I got about three hours of sleep, but that was not the fault of my Helix mattress, mattress uh, in Helix Sleep because Helix Sleep is uh, it's the most comfortable mattress you'll ever sleep on. And the reason is that it's customized to you. All you got to do is uh, take the quiz. It takes about two minutes to complete. And it matches your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress for you. If you like a mattress that's really soft or firm, if you sleep on your side or your back, whatever it is, you go through all of it. Like I said, it takes just two minutes. Um, and they'll find the specific mattress that will work with your unique tastes. You don't need to take their word for it. Helix was awarded the number one best overall mattress of 2019 and 2020 by GQ and Wired Magazine. And you can find out why yourself if you go to helixsleep.com Walsh. Take their two-minute sleep quiz, and they'll match you to a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. Right now, Helix is offering up to $200 off and free pillows with all mattress orders for our listeners at helixsleep.com Walsh. That's helixsleep.com Walsh for up to $200 off your mattress order. And if you didn't catch Backstage last night, then uh, you missed a lot of things, especially the melodic uh, sounds of Smokey Mike and the God King. Uh, and so th- that was already that was already your biggest mistake was to miss out on that. But even worse, it means you didn't hear the extremely exciting news. We've got several new projects in the works that are going to change the way you stream. Because here at the Daily Wire, we recognize the important role entertainment plays in our culture and in our world. And we've been working overtime to make sure we're bringing you non-woke content that you literally won't find anywhere else. Like our new comedy series, we're bringing you featuring uh, none, other, none other than the hilarious Adam Carolla. And our new film, starring the fearless Gina Carano, it's called Terror on the Prairie, which is currently in production in Montana. And last but definitely not least, we're dropping the teaser trailer for Shut In, 
our first original production. It's a 60-second look into a thriller that you're not going to want to miss. We seriously can't wait to share the final products with you, so keep your ears and eyes peeled for updates on their release dates. Now let's get to our daily cancellation. You know, we followed the uh, John Gruden story pretty closely on the show because I believe it's not only one of the most egregious examples of cancel culture that we've ever witnessed, but also because it represents in many ways a dangerous escalation. We've seen people get canceled for opinions they've expressed in public. We've seen them get canceled after statements they made or things they posted years ago were dredged up and brought to the surface. We've seen conversations taken out of context. Um, We've seen jokes blown out of proportion. We've seen innocuous comments turned into outrages and edgy comments turned into hate crimes. In the case of John Gruden, all these things are happening at once with the added indignity that nothing he said was public. He communicated his thoughts in private emails from a private email account. But that didn't save him from the mob. And the mob wants us to know that um, it's not going to save us either because every cancellation is performative. It's never about the present victim, but about setting the stage for the next one. And that's why this story matters and why I want to focus on it one more time here. Of course, you know, as we've seen, the media, especially the sports media, has been enjoying itself immensely with this issue, as they always do when they've got someone to cancel. They they enjoy it very much. All the various hosts and personalities um, in sports media have taken the opportunity to give their own little speeches, have their own theatrically emotional moments. None of them can top Randy Moss's Oscar-worthy performance. Um, But, you know, they're, they're all giving it a shot. There's no point in playing many of the examples, but a few of them are instructive because of what they reveal about the nature of cancel culture and what fuels it. So we'll play clips from two commentators. First, here's Keyshawn Johnson. He's the former NFL wide receiver and a current ESPN analyst. He has known Gruden for a long time, decades, and played for him back in the early 2000s. Now that Gruden is on the floor, Johnson is happy to come on over and stomp on his head because why not? Let's listen. I didn't know that that John would say things like that and and put them in an email. He just always been a fraud to me. He just always been a fraud to me. Never, never from day one, he's been a used car salesman. And people bought it because he inherited a championship team built by Tony Dungy and Rich McKay. And he came in there with a little bit of different energy that we had with Tony and it kind of kicked us over the top to get our world championship, which I am grateful for. But at the same time, I also saw through who he was through that journey of getting a championship. The year that, think about it. We won the championship, and we're standing on the podium in the Super Bowl, and the general manager is trying to raise the trophy, and the head coach takes the trophy from him, basically says, give me this, this belongs to me. And like all of that, when you're paying attention and then the next year, the general manager leaves in the middle of the season because he doesn't want to deal with all the shenanigans that was going on. He leaves. Think about this, though, Jay and Max. He leaves in the middle. Rich McKay left in the middle of the season to go take another job with another team because he didn't want to be around this guy. So it just shows how one of the things that keeps cancel culture alive and thriving in our culture is the corresponding death of loyalty. I mean, the canceled person cannot rely on the people who know him to speak up for him. Instead, they'll remain silent or else they'll come out, as Johnson does here, and say, oh, yeah, that guy, total jerk. Never mentioned it before right now, but now that you mention it, yeah, you know, I've, I've always hated him. A lot of these situations could be solved. I mean, cancel culture could be stopped in its tracks if the friends, employers, associates, of the canceled person were willing to venture even an inch out onto the limb to speak up for the victim. But loyalty is a virtue, and we live in a virtueless culture. Think of Chris Harrison, former Bachelor host, uh, you know, who, of course, was canceled. His, his own girlfriend came out and called him a racist when he was getting all the backlash. Now, next and finally, we have Emmanuel Acho, uh, former player turned media personality turned unapologetic scumbag race baiter. Here he is giving his thoughts on the matter, and pay attention to what he says, because... Um, these people just are not hiding the real goal anymore. Listen to this. Couple quick thoughts on John Gruden, and boy, I got a lot of them. First things first, get him the heck up out of there, man. No place in our society for language like that, for speech like that, for thoughts like that, particularly for people in positions of power, not in sports or in life. Now, for those saying it was in 2011, it was such a long time ago, 
Keep in mind, he was 48 years old in 2011, but more importantly, the dude said he didn't have a blade of racism in him while being racist, which means he didn't even realize what he was doing was wrong, so he hasn't worked to fix it. So those thoughts John Gruden had in 2011, if he ain't worked to fix them, he still has them now. But y'all, this is why it's imperative to have minorities as voices and faces in positions of power in society so you don't have rampant ignorance running around like this. The dude was homophobic. The dude was racially insensitive. The dude was sending topless photos of Washington cheerleaders to the president of the Washington football team. Make it make sense. And lastly, dude ain't even a good coach right now. He's 67 and 82 since he won the Super Bowl. That's a 45% winning percentage. He got to go, period. No place in our society for language like that, says the man who I'm sure has never er uttered a crass word in his entire life. But more notably, he says there's no place in our society for thoughts like that. So they're no longer even pretending that their goal is to stop people from engaging in harmful behavior. They're not pretending that this is about holding people accountable for the damage they inflict on other people. This is about telling people what kind of thoughts they're allowed to think. As Acho said to Don Lemon later in the day, it doesn't even matter how you actually treat people. All that matters is what you're thinking while you do it. Listen. Just because someone treats you right does not mean that they treat everybody right. John Gruden, of course he treated his star quarterback earning $125 million. Of course he treated him with the utmost respect, particularly publicly. But just because someone is kind and respectful to you does not mean that they are a kind and respectful person. Actually, if someone treats you well and you've never been presented any evidence that he treats anyone else differently, um, that is, you know, if all you've ever seen from someone is kind and respectful behavior, if that's all you've ever seen, and no one's ever told you about ex different experiences, then you have no right to any assumption other than the assumption that the person is kind and respectful. See, in a sane society, you judge a man based on his actions. And in fact, if someone has negative feelings or thoughts towards you or in general, and yet still treats you well, um, that, that doesn't make him a fraud. Far from it. It makes him all the more respectable because he's not allowing his emotions to dictate his behavior. But these days, as we've seen, actions don't matter. And again, it's, it's not about actions here because these are private emails. No one was harmed by them. No one else knew about them. Uh, so it's a victimless crime until they're made public. It wasn't John Gruden who decided to do that. So the point here is about the thoughts, about the feelings. And what we know from the mob is that all that really matters is what they assume your feelings or thoughts really are. And they can assume what your real intentions are. And that's what they're trying to control are the thoughts. This is about drawing a line and saying, okay, here, here are thoughts you're allowed to think and here are thoughts you're not allowed to think. But, of course, I, I say all this and now my, my third day of talking about this issue because I do think it's important. But the problem is that this all sounds like a defense of John Gruden, which it isn't because you know my policy. That if you, if you don't defend yourself, if you apologize, then uh, I'm not going to defend you. The moment you do that, you accept guilt, you bow to the mob. There's nothing anyone else can do for you. And so really, at the, at the end of all this, I guess I have to say that uh, maybe it's John Gruden who is canceled. Not, not, for, not for any emails that he sent. I don't care about that. But when you have the mob coming after you and you bow and surrender and submit, then you've only fueled it. You've only, you've only this, this is what sustains them. You've given them more, them more sustenance to go after the next person. At a, at, a, at a certain point, I mean, we need someone. We just need someone. And I'm not surprised that it's not John Gruden, but maybe it'll be the next one. Whoever it is, and it'll be someone. They'll find a new target and they'll find them quick. They got what they want out of this. They destroyed his life. They got the apology. 
But they're, they're not waiting around to have a conversation about it. What have you learned from this, John? How, how, you know, how, can we, how can we help you get back on your feet? And you know, how can we work on this redemption arc? They, they don't care about that. They're just going to leave you in tatters, torn to shreds on the side of the road, and they're going to go looking for the next person to run over. We just finally need someone when this happens to say, I, I don't apologize. Oh, but you hurt our feelings. I, I don't care. And I didn't even really hurt your feelings in the first place. But even if I did, I don't care. I don't owe you anything. This isn't about you. This doesn't concern you. Mind your damned business. Get out of my face. And until they say that, until someone says that, this will, uh, this will continue. So we'll leave it there for today. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. Godspeed. Well, if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review. Also, tell your friends to subscribe as well. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, Michael Knowles Show, The Andrew Clavin Show. Thanks for listening. The Matt Walsh Show is produced by Sean Hampton, executive producer Jeremy Boring. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. Our technical director is Austin Stevens. Production manager, Pavel Vodosky. The show is edited by Ali Hinkle. Our audio is mixed by Mike Cormina. Hair and makeup is done by Cherokee Hart. And our production coordinator is McKenna Waters. The Matt Wall Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2021. Superman gets a little light in the loafers. The Italian people chant, Let's go, Brandon! Or actually a little bit of a tougher variation thereof on the streets of Rome. And Rolling Stone magazine attacks a rock and roll legend for not blindly going along with authority. Check it out on The Michael Knowles Show.